The scripture reading today is uh, from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. And if you're using the blue um, Bibles under the chairs in front of you, the page is 552. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. being formed all the time. You're either being formed 
formed into the image of Jesus or are you being formed into the image of the world, right? There are no, there's no neutral ground. Every moment of every day, you're either being formed for something or formed against something, formed or deformed, right? There's no real options here. And so um, this series around spiritual formation is our attempt to say, okay, what does Jesus say about the kind of life that is truly life? And how do we have a vision? How do we build the skills necessary to become uh, these kinds of people that Jesus calls us to become um, in both word and deed? And so the tagline for us, just a simple way to explain that, um, we've just been unpacking this fall, uh, formation is learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. Learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. The way of Jesus being this idea of apprenticeship, right? Um, learning to be like Jesus, become like Jesus, learning to be with Jesus, and learning to do what Jesus did. That is the heart of what Jesus calls us to as his disciples. That is the vision for um, formation. And so uh, for the next couple weeks through the end of November, we're looking at how that happens. We've talked about the why and the what. If you missed those, I encourage you to go back and get those. But we're looking at how that happens. It can seem like a mysterious process, right? Like how does God actually form us? What does that look like? Do we just like get into a prayer closet somewhere and click our heels together and get in the lotus position and start humming? I mean, like how does this thing actually work, right? Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about. So here in Romans chapter 13, um, there's this invitation for us to wake up, right? And wakefulness is a key piece of formation. A few weeks ago, we talked about God's role in formation, right? That God in Ephesians chapter 1, from beginning to middle to end, before the foundation of the world, God has chosen to set his affections on us. That God is the, the first cause, the catalyst, the chef, if you will, when it comes to formation. He's inviting us to feast with him, and he promises to be there with us and to guide us throughout the process to seal us by the Holy Spirit, right? That really, uh, at the end of the day, formation is primarily God's work. Um, so God is always working, he's always present, he's always actively seeking to engage us. But what we see in the scriptures, what we see in the New Testament, really is a theme of the Bible, is that we are prone to fall asleep, right? We are prone, like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, to fall asleep. When I was a kid, I was what you might call a sleepwalker, Right? I don't know if you have any, like, brothers and sisters or roommates that are sleepwalkers. I was a sleepwalker and a sleep talker, which is really the worst combination, right? So I would say all kinds of crazy stuff. My parents uh, would have to kind of put, like, extra bolts and locks on the door. I think one time at my grandmother's house, they found me basically uh, almost out to the street uh, when I was a kid. Uh, my mom, I was, a, I was a baseball player, a catcher, and my mom would uh, come into my bedroom sometimes, and I'd be sitting down in the catcher position calling out pitches and playing baseball in my sleep. Uh, I have a child who will not be named, who is a, a sleepwalker, uh, and, and, and so we'll, we'll find this certain child all over the house, right? Like sometimes uh, they'll be laying on the floor in some random place, sometimes they'll be like rummaging through the cabinets, I mean, and, and you have to be careful with a sleepwalker, because if you try to wake them up too hard and too fast, I mean, it, it's, it's terrifying to be woken up uh, when you're like unconscious like that. And, um, and I think of that, and I think, wow, like how many of us adults? Are, um, though we think we're awake to true reality, are actually sleeping. We're rummaging through the cabinets. We're trying to get outside. But the reality is we are asleep in all the ways that matter. We're awake in some ways, but we are asleep in every area of life that actually matters. We're asleep to what's ultimate, what's true, what's good, what's beautiful, right? We are asleep to reality. And that is uh, 
favorite authors of the spiritual formation, says this about uh, the call to wake up. The struggle to experience God is not so much one of God's presence or absence as it is one of the presence or absence of God in our awareness. God is always present, but we are not always present to God. God is always present, but we are not always present to God. The lights are off and on, and nobody's home. Think of Revelation, God knocking on the door of our hearts and worshiping. Think of the disciples in the boat, right? Just seeking. Thomas Burton says it like this, the Trappist monk, we're all like pilots of fog-bound steamers, peering into the gloom in front of us, listening to the sounds of other ships, and we can only reach our harbor if we keep alert. The spiritual life is then, first of all, a matter of keeping awake. Hear that? Say it again. The spiritual life is then, first of all, a matter of staying awake. 22 times this verb for sleep is found in the New Testament. Sometimes it's literal physical sleep, but oftentimes it is used to, to mean, to kind of connote a spiritual lethargy or an indifference towards ultimate reality, to more permanent reality. So there's a command here to wake up. So let me just, I just want us to look at this. Uh, in terms of two questions. Uh, how do we fall asleep? Because I know some of you are like, not me, I'm not asleep, I'm woke. Okay, uh, let's talk about that. Uh, how do we fall asleep? How would we know? Uh, uh, there's a great movie, and spoiler alert, it's like 15 or 20 years old, but Bruce Willis played a character in this movie called Sixth Sense. You guys ever seen this movie? And uh, it, it just close your ears if you haven't, and you, you know, you get some sensitive soul. But uh, we, we, Bruce Willis plays a psychologist, a therapist, and he's uh, dealing with this kid who says he sees dead people. And so the whole movie uh, goes, and you think that Bruce Willis uh, is, is alive, and he's counseling this kid. And there's a plot twist right at the end when Bruce Willis begins to realize he's actually the dead one. And that the little boy is seeing him because he's dead. Like how many of us that are asleep and think we're alive, but we're listening. So how do we fall asleep? How would we? How do we practice wakefulness? And I want to close with just something very practical that Christians have practiced for centuries that I think could invite maybe uh, some wakefulness for us. So how do we fall asleep? How would you know? Paul says, besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. Because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime. So um, again, this is a, a central theme in the Bible. I began to study this and realized, wow, this is everywhere. There's so many verses on um, waking up. And we see in different characters, little vignettes and pictures of how people fall asleep. And, and I think about my life. Um, I'm a pastor, right? Like, I'm, I'm vocationally employed to stay awake. And yet, how often do I find myself uh, falling asleep? And so I want to share four quick ways that I experience and see in the scriptures people uh, falling asleep and maybe give you some uh, warning signs. Just think of these as like, you know, your dashboard, just some things that might pop up and let you know that it's time to get your oil changed, okay? So uh, first thing that often happens is we get distract distracted. Distraction can uh, be a symptom or can be a cause for falling asleep. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay, uh, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift 
easy to drift. It's hard to pay attention. It's easy to be distracted, right? Like we live in what's been called a culture of distraction. There are all these forces both outside of us and inside of us that are conspiring to keep us distracted, right? There's a whole um, science of attention that might be helpful for us to pay attention to as we think about what it looks like to stay awake. Um, science of attention. There's a, uh, a journalist uh, who's won some Pulitzers by the name of Dan Goldman. He wrote a book called Focus. And in Dan Goldman's book on focus, he's, he's kind of summarizing the research on uh, attention. We know a lot about attention, kind of neurobiologically, sociologically. He says, we basically spend about 50% of our waking hours on autopilot, right? Like, you ever been, had this experience where you get in the car and you drive somewhere and you had no idea how you got there? Like, you do that every Monday going to work. Uh, you have no idea how you got there. You get through a bunch of meetings and you're like, I, I think I blacked out. I'm not really sure uh, what I said there. Uh, that's what he's talking about. And, and what he says is that's actually a very normal thing. That is a physiological uh, event that is uh, required for your brain to be healthy. So the brain tends to economize or preserve uh, energy, right? And one of the ways that it does that is by paying the least amount of attention possible to whatever it is you're doing in the moment. So like you ever had somebody, like, you're talking to them and they're like, hello, you know, like, your kids are like, mom, mom, dad, dad. It's like you're, you're kind of paying attention, but you're kind of not. That is actually a normal function of the brain. Now think about it. When you are hypervigilant, right, which is one of the, uh, it's actually a symptom of uh, mental illness, right? When you are hypervigilant and you are paying attention to everything, right, you're paying attention to everything, it will drive you crazy. Like the brain cannot hold everything in attention simultaneously or you would live, I mean, think about it. If you remember every single thing that happened in your life, right, if you are holding in the center of your consciousness everything that's happening to you, I mean, just think about the last week. And that's actually one of the things your brain is doing. Your brain is trying to figure out and filter what's important and what's not important. That's why concentrated attention takes effort to sustain. We exhaust our attention, and we need to rest, so we tune certain things out, uh, and we allow other things through the filter. Now, what's interesting about this science is that, uh, and I'm going to throw some shade for just a second on marketing people because I'm, I'm a marketing undergrad. What's interesting is there's a whole field of, of – uh, of, of attention grabbing and attention commoditized, making a commodity out of attention, however you say that, um, where, where people have learned how to capture attention and then, and then profit off of it, right? That's what we call marketing and advertising. So there's a guy named Ben Parr who wrote a book called Captivology. He is himself a marketer, and he talks about this phenomenon of, of uh, kind of paying attention to triggers and leveraging those to grab and convert people's short-term attention into long-term attention, otherwise known as brand loyalty, and uh, lots of profit, right? And so in this book, he uses the metaphor of a fire, right? And he says um, every fire must have three components, ignition, kindling, and, a and eventually it turns into a bonfire. Ignition is your immediate um, uh, attention, kindling is your short-term attention, and a bonfire then is your long-term attention. So think about uh, ignition as... Uh, the ding or the notification, right? It used to be the billboard. Now you're just assaulted all the time with all kinds of messages, most of them subconscious that you're not even paying attention to. Those are attempts to disrupt your attention and get you to pay attention to what they want you to buy, an ideology, a product, uh, you know, an education, whatever. Okay, and then 
then you convert that immediate attention into short-term contention. You throw kindling on there, you repeat those messages, you try to convert somebody from a one-time transactional purchase to multiple transactional purchases, and then eventually you want to turn that into a bonfire, right? And that's where, like, you know you're in the bonfire when you can't imagine that somebody else thinks differently than you, right? Like, if you're an Apple person, you're just like, I can't believe that actual human beings still buy PCs, right? Like, that makes no sense to me. I can't believe that somebody thinks, okay, you're in the heat of the bonfire, right? You're being warmed by the bonfire of some very effective marketing tools, right? Now, um, one author actually um, uses this language uh, in an article, again, another marketer, um, to, he, he describes it as the fracking of the modern attention. I love that language, right? Fracking, where you go mine deep down into reservoirs that were previously unreachable down to the level of shale, and you have some horizontal fracking and disruption, and then you're able to mine out more oil and gas uh, and harvest that and commoditize that. He says that's what's happening with your attention, right? Uh, like, like they're after you. They are after your attention as much as they are your money and your uh, time. And it's a problem, right? It's a problem. It presents challenges for us in terms of being alert. We're distracted, right? Like we can't focus. Like I hear so many people that are like, man, uh, spiritual formation, yes. This is my thing, finally. We're going to talk about spiritual disciplines or spiritual practice. Hang on a second, I just got a text. You know, oh, we're going to talk about prayer. I love prayer. Hang on, I just got an email notification. I got to respond to this. Can you just hang on for a second? I mean, that's how we live our lives, right? We're constantly distracted. And though we have good intentions, we find ourselves unable to keep our attention, right? Like uh, uh, Emily Griffin has defined prayer as basically giving God our full attention. But, like, how hard is it for us to pay attention to God for just 30 seconds without being distracted? I defy you to do it for, like, a couple minutes in a row. Really challenging. Ronald Rollheiser again says this, Narcissism accounts for our heartaches, pragmatism for our headaches, and restlessness for our insomnia. And constancy of all three together account for the fact that we are so habitually self-absorbed by heartaches, headaches, and greed for experience that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside of and around us. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like to. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in movie theater, the sports stadium, you can tell this is dated, and the shopping mall, uh, let's say Amazon, uh, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Distraction keeps us busy. Right? And it's easy to be busy. Second thing we see in the scriptures is disappointment. Disappointment can, can really numb us to the realities of life. Think of Luke chapter 22. Uh, verse 45, when uh, Jesus invites his disciples to come out, um, let me throw this slide up here in just a second, he, he invites his disciples to come out into the, uh, the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus had a practice of getting away in solitude and silence with God, and he invites his disciples to come out to that place with him, notice what he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation, what's the temptation? Falling asleep, pray that you wouldn't enter into that temptation, 
And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Why? Not just because they were tired and had a hard week. They were sleeping because of suffering, because of their wounds, because of their pain, because of their disappointment, because of the trauma they had experienced, because of the disillusionment between what they expected life to be with Jesus and what actually became. Let us walk with decency, back to Romans 13, as in the daytime, 
not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. I think it's interesting that he puts all those on the same plane. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make uh, plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. And desires of the flesh being disordered love, disordered desires. We fall into these patterns all the time. Right? Disobedience uh, leads to more disobedience. Uh, one step leads to multiple steps. We find ourselves down a path that we never intended to go with people we never intended to go with, going much further than we ever intended going. This escalating cycle of numbing ourselves, blaming other people, hiding and pretending like everything's better than it is, while internally we are falling apart. Internally, we're lacking just basic desires. Like, I don't know if you ever felt like that. I just don't want to go to missional community and be vulnerable about how bad of a week I really had, right? Like, I don't want to go to discipleship. I don't want to let people see how, uh, how bad this cycle really is right now. And it just shows us what we need. So this, these, are, these are symptoms of what it could feel like. And there's many others, right? So much we could talk about. But these are some of the, the core ones that I see in my own life and that people have written about for centuries in terms of um, what it looks like to fall asleep. So the question then becomes, okay, what do we do about that? How do we practice wakefulness? What does it mean to really be awake? If this is the vision, if this is a picture of falling asleep, what is God's invitation to us in terms of wakefulness? And again, this is a central theme in the New Testament, a central theme. There's a, a little book written in 1963 that barely anybody knows about. I discovered while I was studying called Spiritual Wakefulness in the New Testament. It's written by a German scholar. And this scholar basically argues that this, this idea of watchfulness and wakefulness is at the heart of Christian spirituality. And it's actually the, one of the central themes in uh, the New Testament. Let me just give you some examples in case you don't believe me. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, Jesus said, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 38. Stay dressed for action. Go to bed with your running shoes on, he says. Uh, keep your lamps burning. Keep the wicks trimmed uh, and, oil, you know, and properly oiled. And, and keep those lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. They may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Revelation chapter 3, a warning to the churches. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Turn around. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come. Wakefulness is really being awake to ultimate reality, to the presence of God in our lives. We're awake to what all kinds of people think about us and say about us. Wake up, too. We're awake to what our boss thinks about us. Right, that feels pretty pretty urgent. We're awake to what our spouse thinks about us, doesn't think about us. We're awake to what our children, what our grandchildren, what our parents think about us, doesn't think about us. We're awake to what our neighbors say about us, what, what's happening on social media. Like We're awake to all kinds of reality. But what, what the Bible says to us is those are lesser realities, and there's a more ultimate, more permanent reality, and that is God himself. And it's wanting to see God in the midst. Christianity um, gets accused being an escapist religion, right? Like you come to Christianity to dull reality and to escape. 
C.S. Lewis says it's actually the opposite. Christianity is the thing that's waking you up to ultimate reality, right? It is, it's like being woken out of a spell, he says, learning to be disenchanted with the world so that we can be enchanted to God, to the true reality. He calls it the deep magic in the Chronicles of Narnia. The, the thing that is most true about reality is God and his presence in our lives. And yet, it's hard for us to be awake. So let me just give you a real simple definition of wakefulness. Um, it's learning to be fully present to God, to other people, and to ourselves. Learning to be fully present to God, other people, and ourselves. This is not something that we manufacture. This is the work of God in us. It's the, the work of the Holy Spirit when he's placed in our lives is this ongoing work of keeping us awake, right? Keeping us vigilant, making sure we don't fall asleep, convicting us when we do fall asleep, right? Illuminating us and giving us a vision for what it looks like to live lives that are fully awake, fully human, fully alert, fully watchful. That's what God's inviting us to. And it really starts with paying attention. So a couple things I'll say here, and then we'll close with some practical advice, right? A couple things. One, and I think most importantly, is learning to pay attention, right? Back to Hebrews chapter 2. Pay attention. Don't forget. Remember. Paul says it like this in Romans 13. Besides this, since you know the time, if you have a Bible and you mind circling it, I would circle that word time. Underline it. Highlight it on your device. It is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Wakefulness starts with paying attention to time. There's two types of time in the New Testament. One is chronos. The word here is chronos oftentimes. And it's chronological time, right? Like literally what time is it, okay? Then there's Kairos time. Kairos time is the time that Jesus invites us to see. It's existential turning points and pivots where God is showing up in a supernatural way. Like Jesus will say throughout the New Testament or throughout the Gospels, um, my time has not yet come. And then there comes a moment where Jesus says, my time has come. That word time is the word Kairos. God is breaking into the ordinary and mundane. He's going to do something special and supernatural. Natural, but we will miss it if we're not paying attention. Now, here's the good news God helps us. God is paying attention to you. What wakefulness really looks like is paying attention, it's like it's returning a favor to God. Think of Psalm chapter 8. What is man that in the midst of all that God has going on, he would be said that it's in God? imagination controls your life. You look at something long enough, you become it, right? It's like the old Greek mythology, right? You look at that, those snakes, in the, and you turn to stone. Leighton Ford says it like this, and it's 
great book, The Attentiveness. Attentiveness means respecting, attending to, waiting on, looking at, and listening to the other, the persons and things that we encounter for what they are in themselves, not what we make of them. Not the idealized thing that we want it to be, not what should be, not what ought to be, which is categories that the church usually traffics in, what should be and what ought to be. That, that leads us to a place of denying reality, right? He says, look at it for what it is. Right now, looking at, listening, the people, the things, God, that we encounter in our everyday lives, paying them honor by respecting and paying attention to them. This is, this is so ancient, it's, it's laughable, because we just forget these things. But the ancient writers used to call this the practice, it was a spiritual discipline of turning aside. And, and it comes from the story of Moses, right? When he turns aside to the burning bush, like something that doesn't happen, Kairos moment, something that doesn't happen every day, a bush just catches fire. And Moses, rather than walking by on his cell phone, you know, it's like, oh, that's interesting. I snap it on Instagram, throw it on Instagram, Snapchat or whatever. Um, he goes, hey, maybe I should turn this up. Maybe something's happening here. And he turns aside. And, and God uses that moment to raise up Moses as the one who would deliver people out of slavery. Think about it. Haley Barton says it like this in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Leadership. Learning to pay attention and knowing what to pay attention to is a key discipline for leaders, but one that rarely comes naturally to those of us who are, is there a better description for our modern moment, barreling through life with our eyes fixed on a goal. One of the downsides of visionary leadership is that we can get our sight set on something that is so far out in the future that we miss what's going on in our life as it exists right now. We are blind to the bush that is burning in our own backyard and the wisdom that is contained within it. We squander the gift of the day just as it is. These people, just as they are. The meekness, the sweetness, even the bittersweetness of this particular place on the journey, just as it is. The voice of God calling to us in our own wilderness. I just I would just refer to as like reality, right? Like uh, as I pay attention to what's going on outside of me, really it's learning to pay attention. It's kind of like looking at all things burning. You think about the burning bush in the Old Testament, the burning hearts on the road to Emmaus, like just paying attention to what's burning inside of me and outside of me, which then leads us to a place of awareness, right? Which is just embracing reality as it is. And that's hard, right? Because it's bittersweet. When I begin to really pay attention and stop running from myself and running from God and running from other people and actually sit in my life as it really is, there's a bittersweetness to it. The bitterness is like, wow, this is worse than I ever hoped. It's bad. Much
sweetness is like, but God is good. And God's more amazing and his grace more potent than I could ever imagine. God is attracted. There's something in the heart of God that is attracted to failure and weakness. Praise God. He moves toward us in our weakness. So that awareness can then give rise to all, right, all gratitude. I look out of the world and I see what God's doing. I see the salvation that he's working in my past, in my present, the one who's promised to help to me in the future. And I can say uh, with the writer of Isaiah 52, um, which many believe is the backdrop for this passage, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? How beautiful is the salvation of God. And I can begin to have a heart that It doesn't look to the future with cynicism and despair, but looks to the future with laughter and jubilation. I thank you for what you're doing. God, would you do it again? Amen. Simone de Beauvais, the great French author, says, expectant waiting is the foundation of the spiritual life. Expectant waiting is the foundation of the spiritual life. And that's what happens when we begin to pay attention. Salvation is nearer than when we first believe. God is still working. He is still active. He is still inviting us to experience deep transformation in our lives. So how do we apply this? I want to close with just a practical thought for you. And it's really birthed out of my own story, my own experience um, with this. This message in many ways has been kind of a, a homecoming, if you want to call it that, or a reckoning in the way that I live my life before uh, about seven or eight years ago. Um, we had come out of a season of just really busy uh, ministry life, not really paying attention. There's kind of been a system that's really called us to pay attention. It was about productivity and efficiency and, uh, and getting stuff done in, in, in the name of Jesus. And um, and so, man, like, we moved to Indy in so many ways. We had four kids under five. Uh, things were busy, planting a church. Um, all of the, these pressures came together and just dismantled. I'll say it for me. My wife's uh, second row over here, too, so dismantled. shouting through our pain to us, messages, and, and clearly he was talking to me. And I tried to get away, I went down to the canal for a day, and I actually had a panic attack on my day of solitude, right? So just the worst case scenario, I'm just like, something is broken. And so what I share with you in terms of learning to pay attention and wakefulness has been for me the missing piece of my spirituality for decades. And now I feel like God has brought so fresh seeds in my throat and deepening in my trust in him and my Part of that's on us as a church. 
have a responsibility in that. Uh, I love, uh, and, and it feels indictment from the worship time now and about uh, what's been happening in the church. He says, speaking to pastors, our task is the opposite of distractions. Our task is to help people concentrate on the real but often hidden event of God's active presence in their lives. Hence, the question that must guide all organizing activity in a parish is not how to keep people busy. God, save us from busyness in church. But how to keep them from being so busy that they can no longer hear the voice of God who speaks in silence. Let me go back to Ben Carr's metaphor of his mission, kindling and bonfires. Think of how we capture it in verse 15. Um, something that's been helpful for Christians for centuries is a simple practice of prayer. Prayer is oftentimes connected to watchfulness. If you read like Ephesians 4 and Ephesians and throughout the New Testament, there's a call to wakefulness in terms of prayer. Um, and, and there's an ancient practice developed by a guy named Ignatius of Loyola called the daily uh, the prayer of examples. Right? And it's basically just uh, taking five minutes in the morning or ten minutes in the morning or however long, and maybe for you it's just like five seconds would be a win, uh, five or ten minutes at lunch, and five or ten minutes at the end of the day. And just simply saying, Holy Spirit, God, I welcome you into my, uh, into my life. God, I, I want to be aware and awake to what you're doing in my everyday life. I don't want this to just be some general experience of you. I want to experience you in the particulars of my day. My daughter's school, which is a class school, Christian school, recently started incorporating this as an end-of-the-day practice, right? Welcome, Holy Spirit. I want to see you at work in our lives. It takes five minutes at the end of the day to write out a reflection on where they've seen God at work. And Ignatius talked about looking for uh, consolations and disconsolations, right? Those things that bring life. God, what have you done in my day to bring life today? And why? God, what's encouraged me today? God, why? Like, God, thank you for that encouragement that you gave me, right? Just that little thing that you gave me that you knew I needed. God, thank you for that. Cultivating an awareness of God's presence in the ordinary activities of our lives. And then, God, what, what sucked the life out of me this week? What, what drew energy away from me? What discouraged me and why? And then resolving, you know, part of that process is, is, is turning away from those things that are bringing us down. Uh, part of that's accepting things that we cannot change. Part of it's resolving. God, I want to continue to see you do more of this in the future. But that's the spark oftentimes. It's just the awareness of what God is doing in and around us that creates the first spark. Right? I, I need to know that God is active and present in my life. Not in just some general 30,000 foot way, but 30 feet in front of me on the ground right now. God, where are you working? And help dial me into that reality. And then Kindling, right? We turn that uh, immediate attention into short-term attention. We throw some kindling on there, right? We begin to talk to other people in our discipleship groups, in our missional communities. Hey, I feel like God may be speaking to me here. Can you help me discern this? Can we pray about this? Can we read a book around this? Again, not just some general Bible study that you picked up from some Christian bookstore or got off of Amazon, but like, no, this is the specific way I see God at work, and I want to build some fire around that. I want to give some lift and oxygenate that thing. And so I need to pray about this. That's where the spiritual disciplines can be really helpful to pour fuel on the fire. And then the hope is long-term, that as you're organizing your life around these themes and these patterns, God begins to turn that into something, right? A heart that begins to warm those around you in your community, in your neighborhood, in your street. And it becomes a place where people come in from outside of the church to experience the life of God. Now that's just one way that you could learn to practice. But I found it to be, for me, a very transformational thing to 
fully present to him, to those he placed around us, and to us. Let me pray for us. Give us a vision for what 